So tonight we're going to talk about getting noticed. What does, it, what does it take to get noticed by God? You may think that that's not a relevant question to you or to your life. When you come to a passage like 1 Kings 18, which is about this confrontation between Elijah, the prophet of God, and the prophets of Baal, and this contest to see who is the true God, you may think, well, how does that connect to my life? But I would actually contend that much of what passes for Christian activity has more in common with Baal worship than many Christians would like to admit. The heart of Baal worship is getting God to notice you by the things that you do, by sort of frenzied activity in the name of religion. And that goes on all the time goes on all the time, as I hope that we'll see. The Lord Jesus himself actually makes mention at one point and condemns those who pray like pagans. And when he describes what this is, he says it's people that pray using lots of vain words. They pray, they talk a long time, hoping that by their many words they'll get God to listen to them, that they can manipulate God into doing what they want. And it's a very interesting discussion. What is the difference between faith and manipulation when it comes to the way we live the Christian life? How much of our quote-unquote Christian life is sort of this whirling dervish of frenzied activity driven by this deep fear that we haven't done enough to really secure the smile of God. I think it explains a lot of what goes on in evangelical Christianity in America. And so as we dig into this, I hope not only that we will see a connection between our own lives and the Christian subculture that surrounds so many of us, but I hope we also will see the good news of what God does to break into that. And that's where we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 18. So, if you have a Bible or if you have the little passage that I just handed out, let's look at chapter 18 of 1 Kings. We'll start at the beginning. I should tell you that in chapter 17, in response to the Baal worship, Israel at this point in her history has departed from the worship of God and the country really as a whole has went over to worshiping this false god, Baal. And uh, back in chapter 17, the chapter right before this, Elijah, the prophet of God, announced to the king, uh, Ahab, announced to him that God was going to send a drought and stop it from raining for several years. And so that's where we pick up the story here in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. After a long time, in the third year, that means the third year since uh, Elijah announced the drought, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to King Ahab, and I, God is saying, will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord, in Yahweh. 
Whenever there's all capitals for Lord, it means Yahweh. When Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Jezebel is the wife of King Ahab at this point. When Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go throughout the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. No problem killing the prophets of God, but we don't want any of our mules to die. That's the irony there, right? So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Elijah, who's been gone for years. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, that means Ahab, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, said Obadiah, that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master Ahab has not sent someone to look for you, Elijah. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave and go to my master and say, Elijah's here. And if I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he'll kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here, he will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely Present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord." The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they, the prophets of Baal, took the bull given them and prepared it. 
Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, but there was no response. No one answered, sorry. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy. That's really a euphemism for going to the bathroom, is what it says in Hebrew. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired, literally the Hebrew says, healed the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not give up even on adulterous people who betray you and spurn your love. We thank you for the picture that we have here in this passage and the picture we have even more clearly in Jesus on the cross. We pray that you would fill our hearts with hope as we consider your love and your word tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I think the most important thing to see right off the bat as we try to understand what is this story about is the way the Lord takes the initiative. And it's not just that he takes the initiative to send Elijah to Ahab to set up this God contest. The, the initiative actually starts before this. The drought itself is part of the Lord's initiative. 
Like I said as I started to read tonight, 1 Kings 17, God removes his prophet, Elijah, from King Ahab. Not only does Elijah come and say to Ahab, there is going to be a drought for three years, but then God sends Elijah into hiding. So there is not only a drought of rain, there is a drought of the word of God. The king in Israel is supposed to be one who listens and scrupulously obeys the word of God. But Ahab has not done that. And so God removes not only the rain, but his word from the land. To try to drive Ahab back to his senses. But the removal of God's word, the drought of rain is not enough. And so God sends Elijah now to come back to Ahab. And this time, Ahab does not repent, but instead he sees Elijah as the troublemaker. And if you just think for a moment about how often God takes the initiative in our life, sometimes by removing things, sometimes by bringing things we don't want, and how often is our first reaction to think that God is the troublemaker, that what is his provision, that what is his love and his initiating love towards us, we often regard as making our lives more difficult, right? How often we blame God and his intervention for our troubles instead of coming to repentance. And that's the situation. Ahab and the people of Israel are in deep weeds. It's not enough for God to remove his word. It's not enough to change their hearts. It's not enough for him to send Elijah because Ahab still regards him as the troublemaker. But what's interesting in the first part of this passage is to see that the Lord has a variety of ways of working. And this is, this is really interesting. When you think about 1 Kings 18, and if you, know, you go through seminary and then you have to study for ordination exams and you try to think about, okay, how can I you know, sort of get in my head a, an outline of the book of 1 Kings, uh, you think about chapter 18 and you think this is the story about Elijah on Mount Carmel, but it's also a story about this guy, Obadiah. And that's interesting because Obadiah doesn't get much fanfare, even though there's quite a few verses devoted to Obadiah. And I think one of the fascinating things about chapter 18 and one of the helpful things about reading the Bible in context like we try to do here is that you see in this passage, in this very passage, that the Lord has a variety of ways of working. When Elijah is gone from the scene for three years, God raises up this guy, Obadiah. Now, Obadiah's ministry is not nearly as flashy. It's not nearly as confrontational. It doesn't get the headlines. It doesn't make the children's Bibles. And yet, God uses him. Now, a lot of people look at Obadiah and they say, well, the contrast between Obadiah and Elijah is one that makes Elijah look like a fearless guy and Obadiah looks like a wimp. Because after all, as soon as he runs into Elijah, he's like, Oh, I can't go talk to Ahab. He's going to kill me. Why does he think he's going to get killed? Because Elijah sort of has this habit of disappearing at times. And so Obadiah's like, I know what's going to happen. You're setting me up. I'm going to go talk to Ahab and say, Elijah's here. 
And he's like, really? All right, where is he? And then you're not going to be there, and I'm going to get killed. And don't you understand? Like, I've been serving God. The God, Lord has been using me to protect some of his prophets, right? And it's a valid, vital ministry. The text does not criticize Obadiah. The text says here he's doing a vital ministry that's important. And I think this is important. You know, I, of my years of ministry, I've always thought this was a fascinating thing. The kind of people that think that God has called them to ministry often are the people that have sort of those upfront kind of gifts. Maybe they're musicians or song leaders or preachers in the making. But often there's these people who have very strong gifts for ministry, but because we live in a context where we so emphasize the upfront kind of gifts that other people feel like maybe they're not really called. I always think about a friend of mine, Mike Smith. He's a pastor down at Christ Community Church. And Mike, when he was in college, had a wise professor who suggested to him that he should go to seminary and think about ministry. Now, Mike is, is an engineer by training, right? He's very good at sort of kind of tinkering with things. Like, he's the guy you want coming to your house to like fix something, or if you're going to tear out a wall and do something like, you know, is, it, it, he has that kind of ministry. He's down at Christ Community Church. But I've often thought like every church wants a guy like Mike Smith. I served on staff with Mike for, with several other pastors for a number of years. And I always was interested in every, every church wants to have a guy like Mike. He's the guy who will be at the hospital with you when you're having a crisis. He's the guy who shows up. He's that guy, but he's not the most dynamic teacher. He's a good teacher, but he's not the most dynamic guy. He's not the upfront guy, right? And those guys, every church wants, and seminaries turn out very few of them. Because most of those people feel like ministry is not my calling. I don't know about you, but I, I just want to make this point that there are a variety of roles in the kingdom of God. And do not sort of think that the only kind of people God uses are people that like to stand up front and talk about stuff. And I think particularly in sort of the, the Protestant tradition, that, that misunderstanding can happen a lot. So I just wanted to take a second to say that. There are many different and valid roles in the kingdom of God. Romans 12 is all about this, which in a lot of our small groups, we're looking at Romans and we're getting to Romans 12. But you see it here as well in this picture. Um, now, the other thing that I think is so fascinating and so helpful to see here, whoa, um, in this idea of the Lord taking initiative, is that God does not wait for his people to seek him. Guys, that is such an important thing for us to, to know tonight. The people here in this passage are not crying out for help, and neither is their king. But God sends his prophet not only to speak the word, but to fight the Lord's enemies. You have to understand, the prophets of Baals are the enemies of the people of God. But the people of God have allied themselves with the prophets of Baal. Much like in the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve set themselves against Satan. They ally themselves with Satan against God and against his kingdom. And God says, I will not allow those teams to stand. And in his grace, he breaks that peace that Adam and Eve have made between them and Satan. He puts enmity between Satan and Adam and Eve. And he puts peace between himself and and his people. And that's what Elijah comes to do. And the situation is very serious. God relates to his people 
as both creator and husband. It's a great verse in Isaiah where it says, your maker is your husband. And to understand what's going on here, you have to understand that when God made a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai, back in the days of Moses, he married himself to his people. And the Bible repeatedly uses this kind of love language, marriage language, to describe the way the Lord relates to his people. But here we see that the marriage is dead. You know, there are times as a pastor where a couple, a married couple, will come in to your office, and often that time is after the marriage is always dead. It's one of the most tragic things is that often people don't come for help until the marriage is dead. And you, you, there's this experience that happens all the time where you begin to, to sort of enter into trying to unpack what's happened, what's the relational breakdown here, and you'll ask somebody something like, do you, do you really, are you still committed to this marriage? And the answer that you don't want, but the answer that you get so often is silence. And you know when you get that answer that this marriage has died. And that's the picture we have here. Elijah stands up before them and says, do you want to be married to Yahweh, the God who has married himself to you? Or are you going to marry Baal? And the people say nothing. The marriage is dead. But God refuses to let it stay dead. And so he takes this initiative. He comes and he does battle against Baal and Baal worship. Now to understand what's going on here in this passage, you need to understand a little about Baal worship. What was attractive about Baal worship? Why had all of Israel run after the worship of Baal? Well, there's a couple things that might be helpful to know. For one, it has royal sanction. It's what the king and queen are worshiping. And one of the things that people in every age have discovered is that if the king and the queen, if the people who are powerful have a particular religion, it would be politically and careerly advantageous to you to be part of that religion too. So there's an automatic sort of attraction to Baal worship because if you want to get anywhere uh, in Israel in this period of time, Baal worship's the way to go. If you're a prophet of God, <laughs> you're either hiding in a cave or you're dead. Okay? So that's one attraction. But not only that, Baal worship promises to meet felt needs. Baal is a storm and fertility god. Baal is the god of rain. The irony, of course is that God merely says there'll be no more rain and Baal is impotent to do anything about it. And the interesting, it's an interesting, I use that, that word impotent deliberately because the way that Baal worked, the way Baal worship worked, is that the people understood that Baal, that his semen, his sperm, was the rain that impregnated Mother Earth, Right? So Baal worship is all about trying to get Baal to ejaculate onto the earth so that life would be propagated. This is why part of Baal worship involves all kinds of sexual stuff. People had temple prostitutes. They would go and literally for worship, they would have sex with prostitutes. So that's a pretty hard thing to beat, isn't it? <laughs> you know, if you're, a prophet of, if you're a prophet of God, you're like... Man, you know, 
Baal worship's got a lot going for it. In other words, like we can be there, we can, like it meets your felt needs on so many levels. Israel is an agrarian society, and Baal is the God who brings fruitfulness to your crops and brings life. But what this passage is about is that Baal is impotent. And God, to rescue his people from their foolish, misplaced love, God is going to have to publicly demonstrate the impotence of Baal. He's unable to do what he specializes in. And so that's where we go. So here's what's fascinating. Here's what's fascinating. God takes Baal on, head to head, and he does it on Baal's turf. What's the significance of Mount Carmel? Well, the passage tells us some, but we know from biblical scholars some other things. Mount Carmel was a very important mountain, and it was basically known as Baal's place. This is Baal's turf. It says in the passage here in chapter 18 that they had torn down the altar to Yahweh that was there on Mount Carmel, and now they're worshiping Baal there. So when Elijah said, he doesn't say, let's go to Jerusalem and let's have this out where the temple is. No, he says, let's go have this out on Baal's home turf, Mount Carmel. That's where Baal does his thing. So let's have it out there. Baal is given home court advantage, so to speak. Not only that, God takes on overwhelming odds. And he says, I don't care. There's 450 prophets of Baal. There's 400 prophets of Asherah, who's sort of the female counterpart to Baal. Bring them all. Bring them all. It doesn't matter. There's one prophet of the true God. There's one prophet of the true God. And I don't care how many prophets there are of Baal. Which is a way of saying, you know, Ralph Davis, who's a great commentator on the Old Testament, uh, says, I love the way he says this, he says, Carmel Day, that's what this day was, Carmel, Mount Carmel Day, showed that popularity does not determine reality. You guys need to know that. <laughs> because if you're going to follow Jesus, you're following a crucified God, it will never be popular at least not real Christianity. But popularity does not determine reality. Now, you can go to the opposite extreme and be like, I know that I'm right because everybody disagrees with me. You know, and th that may not be the ultimate sort of standard of how you know you're right. But do know this, as Jesus said, woe are you if all men speak well of you. If you expect to follow Jesus and be popular... Take care. Take heed. But this is, good. this is good for us. In other words, don't judge the future, particularly God's future and what he has planned by what you can see right now. Don't do that. Don't do it with regard to yourself. Don't do it with regard to God's plan for his world. It's very easy to look around. I've been thinking that a lot lately. It's, it's amazing how many friends of mine that have pastored have resigned their churches in the last few years, or last few, really, months. It's amazing, like more than I have known in, in, in many, many years. 
And it's been very discouraging even to think about. Does, it just seems in so many ways like Satan's cause is gaining the upper hand. But don't count God out. Don't judge him and don't judge his future by what you can see. Because God specializes in bringing life out of death. And he's going to bring life out of this marriage that is dead. God also gives the Baal worshippers plenty of time to try to get God's attention. With Elijah taunting them. From morning till midday, they're out there doing all kinds of hoopla, just you know, raising a commotion. They're even cutting themselves. Again, like Baal worship, the way to think of Baal worship, it's basically like a porno flick to try to get Baal excited so that he'll impregnate the earth. They think that if they can get things flowing, whether it's blood or other bodily fluids, that it will somehow get Baal to get into sort of into the same mode and then life will come. That's Baal worship. It's crude. It's crass, no doubt. But it's what it is. And that's what's going on. And what I love here is Elijah's sarcasm. I remember one time I was in a small group and this sweet Christian girl said, I just don't think that sarcasm should ever be used among Christians. And I thought, have you read the Bible? No, you know, seriously, have you read the Bible? Have you read 1 Kings 18? Like, Elijah literally says, shout louder. Maybe he's sitting on the toilet. Now, you may think this is really crazy, but this is really like what all the stories of Baal are about. There is one of these stories about Baal, how when his people come to him, and we have the text that talks about this, that Baal was out on a journey. And so he wasn't there to hear when they called for him. Baal doesn't wear a beeper, right? He's got no cell phone. You can't reach him, right? And this is a big problem. And Elijah's pointing it out to them. In other words, sometimes ridiculous things need to be ridiculed. It's not unchristian. It's not unkind. It may actually be helpful. And then God seems to go out of his way to make it obvious that he's God. Well, listen to this. I mean, Isaiah, Elijah has them soak down the sacrifice. Now remember, they've had a drought for three years, and they're up on a mountain. I'm sure it wasn't easy to get large jugs of water. It seems like a complete waste. But it serves, it serves to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is God. When God sends this fire, it doesn't just consume the bull. It doesn't just consume the wood. It consumes the stones, the soil, and all the water that's in the trench. God goes out of his way because his people need a demonstration that is just over the top. They're dead. The marriage is dead. But God says, I have power to bring life out of death. But what's most remarkable about this story is it's not just a power demonstration. It's not just a confrontation which God is more powerful. The ultimate demonstration here on Mount Carmel is a demonstration that God is committed to turning the hearts of his people back to him again. And Elijah wants to make very sure that we get that. Right? His prayer is this, Answer me, Lord, so that these people these adulterous people who when you come to them and say, 
do you love me? They don't answer. But now you answer me, God, so that they will know that you are going to turn their hearts back to you again. You answer me, not just to show off, but to demonstrate that you are committed to them even though they've turned away from you. This is why Elijah takes 12 stones, and the text makes it very clear. He takes the 12 stones so that the people will know that God cares about the 12 tribes of Israel. He cares about his people. And they even go out of their way in this text to make the point that this is the 12 stones that represent the sons of Jacob. Jacob the deceiver who has now had his name changed to Israel. And they go out of their way, lest you forget that part of the story. These 12 sons of Jacob, the deceiver, are now regarded as Israel. And, and God wants to make sure you know that this altar is going to represent them. Everywhere in the Old Testament that it talks about God sending fire from heaven and utterly consuming the sacrifice, it happens about three or four times, every time. It's a demonstration, not just that God is powerful, it's a demonstration that he is pleased and satisfied with the worship of his people. The first time it happens is on the very first day of atonement in Leviticus. Aaron and the priests lay out the sacrifice. There's a lot of dramatic tension in this, in this passage where they're laying out the sacrifice. God has told them exactly what they're supposed to do, and they're trying to follow it exactly. But then there's that, that moment where they wonder, is the fire going to come down from heaven? Did we do it right? Is God going to accept this sacrifice? Really, it's, it's been said, well said, the book of Leviticus answers the, pro, the question of how can a holy God live in fellowship with unholy people? And the key to it is the sacrifice. And when that fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice on the first day of atonement, can you imagine the sigh of relief that goes up from God's people? That the sacrifice is consumed in our place. And that's what's going on here. Right? It's a demonstration, not just a power. It's not God just showing off. It's God saying, I'm committed to you. I'm the God of Israel, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham. I'm your God. You've spurned me. You adulterous people, you've turned away from me. But I am going to turn your hearts back to me by demonstrating that this sacrifice is acceptable to me. God's people need to know that there is still hope even after the most grievous betrayal. Do you know that tonight? Do you know that? That there is hope that the Lord is committed to turning the hearts of his people back to him again. And if you don't believe it from 1 Kings 18, then you better believe it from the cross. Because the cross is the ultimate mercy demonstration. Paul says it exactly this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. One of my very favorite passages in the whole Bible. If you memorize one verse in the Bible, this is a good one. But God demonstrates, demonstrates, you hear that? His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that God demonstrates his love for us. He doesn't say, you know, they really should know that I'm a loving God. I mean, I've told them over and over again. They should just kind of get that. I think that's one of my great... Failings as a husband is I take that attitude so often the time. Well, Wendy should know. 
that I love her. I mean, I'm still married to her. I put a ring on her finger. She should just know that, right? That doesn't work, does it, ladies? No. We need demonstrations. God has made us in such a way that we need demonstrations. And God is the kind of God who gives us demonstrations. Not just in 1 Kings 18, but in Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Jesus dies for us. But then the story goes to a place that we don't like. I even felt it a little bit. I even almost heard like a little, uh, as I read that last verse. And probably most of us wish that the story just ended with the triumph of the sacrifice. But it doesn't. The story goes on. It actually goes on even beyond what I read. But the story goes on, the section I read, and the prophets of Baal are rounded up and they're slaughtered. And I can hear people saying, oh, there it goes. Why did God have to go ahead and mess it up that way? It was such a really cool, beautiful story, the kind of story that I just love to hear and I need to remember. But then this whole thing about killing the prophets of Baal. Let me just put it to you this way. God's love is not impotent. And those who mislead his people and try to drag their love towards something other than God will have to answer to him. And that's a terrible thing. You may think that you don't like the last bit of this story, but I would submit to you that if we have a God who demonstrates his love, demonstrates his commitment, but then doesn't care diddly squat about the people who are misleading his own people that he loves, what kind of love is it? What kind of love is it? What kind of love is it from a God who doesn't care about people who have deceived his bride? God cares about this. Deuteronomy 13, God lays down the law. Those who are false prophets, who mislead God's people that he loves, lead them astray, will have to answer with their lives. Because God loves his people that much. So you need to consider that as you think about, I don't know if I like where that story goes. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that God loves me enough that he comes and does battle against those that would seek to turn my love away from him. But of course, as soon as I say that, I have to realize that that means he comes and does battle with me. <laughs> because it's not just enemies out there, it's my own unbelief that so often leads me away from God who loves me so. And it's your unbelief. But God is committed to battling against you and against anyone who would seek to separate you from his love. Let me have a couple of concluding applications here. You know, Baal worship may seem so distant from our day, but guys, I, I just have to wonder how often what passes for Christian worship and Christian activity is so often disconnected from a God who loves like this. So often it seems that our Christian activity is not being driven by a solid apprehension 
of the way God demonstrates his love and his commitment to us. So much of it seems driven by the hope that God will turn back to us. But what we see in this passage is the heart of the gospel. The heart of what God wants his people to understand is that he's committed to turning their hearts back. And so often what goes on in the name of Christianity in our day is more about us trying to demonstrate to God that we're committed to him. And it's worth pondering and it's worth thinking about that. Is the gospel of the bloody sacrifice at the heart of our worship? Or is our worship about us telling God what we want to do and what we hope to do and trying to get him to love us because we're so impressive? Like that, that will never bring you to a place of rest. And the gospel is about being able to rest in the commitment of our God, right? And I, th- I think you can't, you can't look at this passage without thinking about, you know, what are, what are the kinds of ways that God brings his kingdom? Because so often, you know, I, I've been doing campus ministry at Belmont now 16 years, and it seems every couple years, somebody's got some new plan for something, some big production that's going to usher in the kingdom and bring real revival to the campus. And all I can tell you is I don't care whether it was the March for Jesus or it was, you know, what was the thing they did at the stadium a few years ago. I mean, these things come and these things go. These things come and these things go. And the watching world looks at it and says, oh, Christianity is about sort of stirring up a bunch of, a bunch of excitement and a bunch of frenzy. But, but what, about, what about changing something? My, my friend Steve Malone, it's kind of sobering for me even to read these words. I come back to these words time and time again. Actually, now my Steve has pancreatic cancer, has six months left to live. And his course in ministry has been a very difficult one. He actually is not in the ministry anymore. I won't go into that story, but it's a really sad story. But these words are still true. He says this. He was the former RUF campus minister at Auburn. And, and one time he, he wrote this on a little email, and I've kept these words. I've found them helpful. I won't read the whole thing to you. I'll just read a little bit of it. But he says this. What is the normal Christian life? See, I think in RUF, what I'm trying to do every week is give you theological orientation to reality. And that's what I think these words help do. What is the normal Christian life? What are we hoping to see cultivated in people? We are constantly driving people to make a big splash. He means in the general evangelical church. Once or twice a year, a group comes along with a plan to, quote, take Auburn by storm. There's always a lot of noise and clamor, a lot of labor and money spent. And for a moment, everyone the Christians at least, look up to see what's going on. As quickly as it appears, it disappears. Some get excited and want to make more noise next year. But for the most part, the noise fades and people go back to the business at hand. And that's where the church ought to meet people, in the business at hand, the ordinary mundane duties and experiences that make up the larger part of our lives. Jump down to the very last last little bit. 
He talks here about how we're to feed people from the Word of God. He's, he's writing to pastors, but it has relevance to you all as well. We're to teach them to open their lives to others. In other words, we're to help them love God and love people in the regular stuff of life. The ministry of presence doesn't sell well. It's a little hard to measure. We're not even sure what it looks like ourselves. It requires dogged obedience and robust prayer, but this is what it means to know God. When we think about evangelism and discipleship, we should think about meeting people where they live in the business at hand. There we will find great struggles and messes, and there we will see the transforming graces of Christ. Many Christians will never notice or recognize this as ministry because it makes so little noise. So what? God brings extraordinary things out of the ordinary. I I bring that back because it brings us back to full circle. Because what I don't want you to go away from and see is like, man, what we really need is a Mount Carmel experience again. Because God is at work in Mount Carmel experiences, but for the most part, for the most part, the Mount Carmel experience, the supreme demonstration has already happened. We're to be witnesses to that. We don't need to recreate it. We're to be witnesses to it in the business at hand, in the everyday of life. You need to give witness to it for each other. You need to give witness to it to a watching world that desperately needs to know that there's another way to live. We don't invite workaholics to come be workaholics for Jesus. We want to teach them about a Savior who said, come to me, all you who are heavy and weary laden, and I will give you rest. And this demonstration of mercy at the cross can bring rest. Let's pray.